Okay, good evening, my friends. I invite you to find a seat. It is 7 o'clock straight up, and we need to get going. It's good to see you tonight. Thank you for braving the Arctic, frigid, oh my goodness. I have a, um, a nectarine tree in my backyard, and a nectarine tree loses all of its leaves in the wintertime, so it's been just, you know, sticks for months. And, uh, you know, it's been, it's been cold, and then warm, and then now freezing. And so the poor nectarine tree, just this last weekend, started uh, blooming. It has all these buds, pink and white. Your trees have that too? Pink and white. It's really pretty. And so I think the tree was like, hey, it's summertime. And now like, whoa, summer was short. <laughs> Man. Well, thank you for braving the, uh, the elements uh, to be here tonight. I think uh, you'll appreciate it. You'll be re- rewarded tonight. Uh, for for that uh, prime time, if you haven't figured it out already, is typically ten week sections, ten week slots, and so we have a fall session which ends right by Thanksgiving, and so then we take Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, and let everybody do all their partying, and then we have our fall session or our winter session, that's the one we're in now, and that ends before Easter. We take a spring break and Easter break, and, uh, and then after that break, then we have a little short one before we have the summertime. And typically, we study one book. Typically, we'll study one book for all 10 weeks. Sometimes we study one book for all 20 weeks. Sometimes we study one book all the entire year. And so this winter session is a very unique uh, prime time because we are reading through two different books in just 10 weeks. And so our first six weeks, which ended last week, six hours, we spent in the book of Esther. It was really good. We got to know about God's sovereignty. We got to see it in, in living color. And I've chosen to, to team that book up with the book of Ruth. And so tonight we launch the book of Ruth. So I hope you turn in your Bibles to the book of Ruth tonight. And I've chosen the two tied together for several reasons, and tonight I hope to, 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 to reveal or that we can begin to see the, the reason that these two were tied together. True, there, there are two books that are named after women. Yeah, it's true. Uh, they weren't written by women, but they were named after them. Uh, but that's not why I picked these two. These two have many uh, similarities uh, in, in them. And part of it has to do with God's sovereignty, and we'll see that even a little bit uh, tonight. But why don't we first open in prayer, and then we'll get started tonight. Well, God, we thank you for your Bible. We thank you for your revelation, uh, your revelation of your word. Um, you, we, we did not earn this. We, we, we did not deserve uh, your truth. We did not deserve to, to understand you better. Um, you being an omnipotent, omniscient, holy, righteous, just um, God of the entire universe and time and space and eternity, and yet uh, you, you broke through all of that to reveal truth about yourself. And so, God, I pray that tonight um, it, it will um, satiate our souls, that, that we will be 
um, that we will understand you more, that we will um, understand ourselves in light of you better. I pray for the teachers down the hallway who are teaching our children tonight. I pray that you'd bless them because of their faithfulness and their sacrifice, really, of being able to be in here tonight. They are with our uh, children tonight. I pray for Robert, Michelle, and Dan and Abby and James in our high school ministry. I pray for their uh, their faithfulness and their, their ministry in, um, in giving the teenagers an opportunity to, to see life from a completely different direction of what they get the rest of the, the, uh, the week in school. And I know it seems to them maybe like spitting in the wind with the mass tidal wave of our culture that is overwhelming our teenagers, but I know that your word is, does not return void. Um, and I pray that it is a benefit tonight. I pray for Scott and Christina. Uh, and Max and Erica and John and Hannah in our junior high ministry in the exact same way, that it would be a benefit to our junior hires. And God, we pray that you, you would help us understand you and your word better tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, um, we're in the book of Ruth. Don't forget you have your phone with you, and someone's going to call you, and we will point at you if it does. And that's just a warning and a promise all, all wrapped up in the same thing. And so here we are in the book of Ruth as maybe a way of introducing the characters in this book, the, 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 the family in this book. Um, I was raised in what I thought was like a normal home. And you were raised in what you thought was a normal home. At least most of you thought it was a normal home. You thought your life was normal. And so... It was that way for me. My parents were both married to each other, and they still are. My dad would go to work every day and come home tired. Uh, my mom was a school teacher, and so she was at school when I was at school, and she was on vacation when I was on vacation. We went on family vacations together. Um, my parents loved each other, and they still do. Um, they loved their children, and they made enormous sacrifices for us. We were in church every single Sunday morning. We were in church every single Sunday night. We were in church every single Wednesday evening. And so this was my family. And so I, I was used to being spanked. I was disciplined a lot because I deserved it a lot. It wasn't like, you know, I had brutal parents. I deserved it a lot, and so I got disciplined a lot. And so I grew up in this home just thinking that this was normal, that, that, that every family was like that. But the older I got, the more I realized that not everybody had all of that. Not everybody had a, a dad at home. Not everybody had a dad that was uh, providing for the family. Not everyone had a mom that was watching out for them. Uh, not every, not, a, lot of my, a lot of my friends weren't worried about being spanked when they got home. I'm like, man, I wish it was like that for me. That's like the one area where I wish my family was like their family. They didn't have to worry about being spanked, but I did because I deserved it too much. And so I thought I grew up in a normal home until you meet the rest of the world and you realize, man, there are a lot of different 
things going out there, on out there. And so it's possible that you grew up in one of those types of families. I know that not everyone here grew up in a, in a home that was broken. Uh, fortunately, I'm not the only one that grew up in a home where we had a married mom and dad, but uh, there are inevitably many of us in this room today that grew up in a home where dad was not providing for the family or, or mom was not providing uh, appropriate discipline or care or love, and, and you kind of had to fend for yourself, and you may even still be paying the, <laughs> the payment of all that still today. And the Bible is filled with examples of families just like that, uh, broken families and difficult families, and that introduces the type of family that we are going to meet today. So the book of Ruth was written in 1000 BC, and the events in Ruth are even several hundred years before that. And so this book is much older than Esther. Remember, Esther was written somewhere in the 300 BCs. This was 1000 BC, so much earlier. Some skeptics of the Bible, some people who, who question the uh, authenticity or maybe uh, question um, the authorship of it, uh, some say that the book of Esther is not a true ac account of history, that we're not, reading his we're not reading history here. What we're reading, they say, is, is at, at least just a story and at best only a metaphor. Now, when you start to read the Bible, the Bible will give you clues as to if this is a story, if this is a metaphor, uh, or if this is a true event. And that has to do in the context, in the reading of the passage. There will be words that will lead you to this idea uh, that this looks to be more like a story or more like a metaphor, or, or this is true events. And there, there, is, there are no cues contextually that would tell us that this is only a story or that this is at best a metaphor. It uses real places. It describes real events that have happened in history, even that are documented in other books of the Bible. And it then, of course, addresses exact events, places, and uses real names of real people. And so putting all of that together, this is not only a story. This is not just a metaphor. What we are going to read is, is a true event in history. Now, I might use the word story because it is a story as well, a story of someone's life. But these, this is a true event in, in history. And that's confirmed because Ruth, uh, the, 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 the title E in this, is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And so, <laughs> it has to be a real person, <laughs> right? Now, if I was to put a title to the book of Ruth, it already has a title, we call it Ruth. But you know, as a pastor, pastors are always like trying to figure out titles. I, we spend, we waste so much time on titles. We try to encapsulate the entirety of the, of, of the passage in one phrase that's easy to understand and is memorable, and nobody cares, nobody remembers anything about the title. Um, but if I was going to title this book, it would be Short Story, Big Message. That would be my title of this, 
short story, big message. And even though this is a very big story, this is, or a short story, but a very big message to the story, it's interesting because it just doesn't mention God a whole lot. Now, it mentions God more than Esther. Esther didn't mention him at all. But the book of Ruth isn't much better. But the reason is the same. Just like in Esther, God's sovereignty was so clear. His, his working in providence was so clear in every move that was made. His name tag didn't have to be on it. It was clear, and the same is true with the book of Ruth. God's sovereignty, his, his providence, his working in people's lives intimately and closely is seen in this book as well. And so his name doesn't have to be all over it. His fingerprints are all over it. Now, one of the major themes of this book, just to kind of prep your brain a little bit of what to think when we're reading this book, um, a part of Mosaic Law, uh, there was this way to redeem impoverished um, family members, uh, a, a way to get them out of their, uh, their terrible situation. And it was the idea of a kinsman redeemer. You've probably heard that word. If you've been around the, around the Bible, you've probably heard that word. The kinsman redeemer. And so this story tells, this, these events tell the story of a kinsman redeemer, of, uh, of a redemption of someone that is in an impoverished state. And it really is a metaphor. So it's not that these aren't true events. This is also a metaphor for Jesus Christ and his helping other people in the impoverishment of sin. And so we'll see those correlations as we move through this great book. All right, well, let's jump in here. Ruth chapter 1. Now, it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now, they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Okay, so let's stop right there uh, for a minute. This time period is during the time of the judges. That's what verse 1 tells us. This takes place during the Old Testament period of the judges. And if you found the book of Ruth, that means you passed right by the book of Judges. The book of Judges is right before this. And during the, the period of the judges, God would often use famines as a way to discipline his people, to discipline the Jews, as a way to get them back on track. He would use a famine. Now, there are famines mentioned in the book of Judges, and if this happens to be one particular of those famines, it's possible that these events of the book of Ruth occurred during the same time as Gideon. You remember Gideon putting out the fleece and all of that? Well, this possibly, probably happened during the exact same time period in one of the famines that is addressed in the book of Judges. And so we're told here that we have this guy, Elimelech, and he is from Bethlehem. That's the, the, the place of King David's birth. That's the place of Jesus' birth. I mean, you know Bethlehem. That he's from Bethlehem. And he moves with his wife 
Naomi and their two sons to Moab to escape the famine. Moab, like Moab, not Moab, you know, Utah, but Moab, Moab. Uh, Moab is only, like in our minds it's only, but it's about 70 miles from Bethlehem. It's on like the the east side of the of the Dead Sea. So it's not terribly far, but remember, I mean, it'd, it'd take you a week to get there because of the transportation aspects. For you, you drive, you, a lot of you drove that today. <laughs> you drove 70 miles today to and from work. Um, but it'd take, it'd take you a week to, to do that in the, in the deserts here in, um, in Israel. And so they moved to Moab. And so what do you think the name of the people who live in, what, what are their names, the people who live in Moab? Moabites. Okay. All right. So you're tracking with me. Okay. So when you moved to Riverside, that made you a Riverside-ites. I don't know. What did, what did that make you? Riversiders? All right. So the Moabites are descendants of Abraham's nephew, Lot. That's where, these, that's where these people came from. And so as Elimelech moved his family to, to Moab, it tells us some things about him. Elimelech, is, he, he's got some cash. He's a little more wealthy than the other people who are experiencing the same uh, famine. And there are a couple reasons that, that I think that. One reason is, uh, notice in, in verse 2, uh, it uses this um, ancient name for Bethlehem, Ephrath, Ephrathites of Bethlehem. Um, that's kind of, that's, that's old school. Um, th- this guy is a part of an established family. He, he, he's, um, like modern terms would be like, he's old money, you know. He's a blue blood. I, I, I worked in Newport Beach, um, not for church, at, at another company, uh, for several years, and a lot of the employees of that company, they were sure that they could pick out who was the new money and who was the old money, the customers of, of the company. And, and, and their math was that the old money, meaning that the money had flowed through their family, had been a part of their family their entire lives, they, they got it from their grandparents and they had the wealth from their, it, it, just, it was it, it just born with a silver spoon in your mouth, you know? Just, that's just the way that it always was. And so the, the math of, the, of the, the people at the company was generally those people are kinder, they're nice. They're just used to the money they have. It's no biggie. Um, but, but the math of the, these employees are like, okay, so the people who have new money, like they've earned it themselves in some way, they, they were the, the, um, the, the high-maintenance ones, you know? <laughs> you know what I mean? They, they're a little high-maintenance, a little demanding because, uh, you know, because now I have some cash, you know? I'm not used to how to live like this. Well, he was a blue blood. Um, he had he had money. Now it didn't that didn't, doesn't really matter in famine uh, land. You know, I mean, a famine doesn't not hit the the rich, but the the wealthy have an option that the poor people don't have. What's the option? To move. I can I can go somewhere where there isn't a famine. He had some money, and so he took his family, he took his wife and his two teenage boys. And they moved. They moved to Moab, verse 3. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Man, that was fast. Then she was left with her two sons. And they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. 
the name of the one was Orpah, this is the wife's name, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. Then both Malon and Chilion, these are the sons of Naomi, also died. And the women, and the woman, meaning Naomi, was bereft of her two children and her husband. So let's go back and look at some things that happened there. In verse 4, this, the, the two sons marry Moabite women. They, they, they're teenagers when they move in, but finally they grow up to be old enough to, to marry, and so they want to get married, if you know what I mean, and they look around and <laughs> who's there? there there's no, there are no Jews. There's only Moabites. Um, people who live in Mo- Moabians, Moab women, and so they decide to do that. Now that might like um, that might like send your you know your radar up like uh oh they shouldn't be doing that. Now in Deuteronomy uh, it, it it told them do, you cannot marry anybody that was a Canaanite. The, no, no Canaanites couldn't marry them, but it. it it was kind of like that with, with the Moabites, but not exactly the same. Uh, a, a man could marry a Moabite woman, but the woman, women could not marry a Moabite men. And so um, it, it wasn't restricted that you couldn't marry a Moabian, um, but the women were restricted from marrying Moab men, but these two sons were not restricted by the Mosaic law to marry Moabian women. And so that's exactly what they did. That's who was around. Now, there were some restrictions that the children from any relationship, any, any a husband and a wife, the husband is a Jew, he marries a, a Moabite woman. The children from that marriage are not considered like a part of Israel. Um, the, the term is the congregation of Israel, like a voting member of Israel. The children are not. Ten generations that it took for them to finally integrate into being a part of the family at large as being a part of the congregation of Israel. And now that's understandable because you need these outsiders to understand that they're really insiders, and it takes 10 generations for a family to fully absorb everything that is the Mosaic law, everything that is following the one true God, as opposed to the God's little g's of Moab. And so 10 generations it would take to do that. But anyway, uh, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, uh, he dies in verse 3. We don't know how he died, and we don't know why we know nothing about his death now we also find out that those two sons they married the moabite women but then those two sons died but we have a little clue about why they died because of their names the name malon means sickly and the name chilion means puny skinny and so when Naomi had them, she's like, okay, <laughs> puny, <laughs> okay, this one looks sickly, you know? And so, obviously, there were already health problems there at the very beginning, um, and I, I mean, imagine trying to take those two to, you know, like Little League, 
you know, sign them up for Little League. Okay, I have Puny and Sickly here. Who, what coach wants these two? And the guy's like, oh, I think he wants those two. <laughs> I don't want those guys. Verse 5. Um, then both Malon and Chilion also died. And the woman, that's referring to Naomi, was bereft of her two children and her husband. That's, that's probably one of the saddest phrases in the Bible right there. Um, you can probably instantly, clearly understand the consequences of having no husband, no sons, no grandkids, nothing. I mean, th- that, that was your mode of retirement. Was, that was your mode of retirement. Now, to protect widows, the Old Testament um, had got it established the law of the leveret. You've heard of that? The, the leveret, the law of the leveret. Leveret means husband's brother the law of the leveret. And so it wasn't an option of the leveret. It was the law of the leveret. And so law of the leveret stated that an unmarried brother of the widow's husband was obligated, it was law, that he would marry the widow, the the wife that the brother left, an unmarried brother. Now, sometimes that un, the next unmarried brother in line is like six, six years old, you know? And so he, he knew he, who he was marrying from six years old. He gets 18, he's like, oh, I got to marry. Now you can see why the whole family would really want to be involved in who you married, right? You want to make sure, okay, I got to make sure my brother marries a good looking one just in case, because uh, I might have to be with her. And so this is the law of the lever, leveret the husband's brother, and it was an obligation, it was a requirement that the closest unmarried brother marry, take care of the, the woman. And any kids that came from that leveret marriage was technically, the kids were technically the kids of the dead, the dead husband because that brother was essentially filling in for the dead husband. And so that was a, a way that, uh, that God had, was going to provide for the, uh, for the widows. Now, what if there aren't any? Well, if there aren't any, then the extended family was required to take care of the widow. But what if there's no extended family? I mean, really, she at that point in time, the only options that a widow would have would be, I don't know, to beg or to prostitute herself, I suppose. I mean, what other options do you have at that point in time? And so you can imagine what's going on in Naomi's mind. Like, okay, my husband took me (laughs) from our family to Moab. I, I knew people back there. I know there's nobody here. There's no one that they, they didn't have close family in Moab. They left the family that they knew. I mean, all with good intentions and all. You know, it's kind of sad. You know, the husband's trying to protect his family from the worst possible situation of the famine, and yet he, <laughs> he unintentionally and, and just because of the way that things occurred, he led them into maybe even possibly a more difficult situation by him leaving at a very inopportune Time. And so this was a very tragic state. That, those are right, right words. She was bereft of her two children and her husband. But she didn't beg. 
and she didn't prostitute herself. She chose a, th- a third option, and that third option was to go back to Bethlehem and see who's there. <laughs> see if anybody's around who will take care of, of her. So, verse 6, Then she arose with her daughter-in-law, daughters-in-law, that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way uh, to return to the land of Judah. And so after the deaths of her husband and, of course, her two sons and, you know, the wives of all this, she hears that this famine is over. And here's how we know that God was involved in the famine. Notice what it said there in verse, uh, in verse 6 there. It said, the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. The original famine was God-induced. Remember, we were talking about God's sovereignty. God has the ability to do anything that he decides to do. He has the power, the strength to, to do anything he decides to do, and he doesn't just do that willy-nilly. He doesn't do that just on a whim. He doesn't do that schizophrenically. He doesn't do that just under emotion. The, the, the vast enormity of his power that he has in this sovereignty is zeroed in, is funneled through his providence, planned, organized, detailed, and he organized this famine as a result of the, the Jews rejecting, um, <laughs> rejecting one of the judges <laughs> that had been in place. That was like the cycle of the Jews. The Jews were like, okay, we're doing good. Uh, they fall away from the Lord. God sends a famine or uh, enemies, a really big problem. They cry out to the Lord. <laughs> God sends a judge, you know, makes it all better. And so, like, that's just the cycle. Like, if you want to read, that's like the judges. There you go. You don't have to read the book of Judges anymore. That's the cycle of the judges right there. And so that's what had happened. They, they, had, they had, you know, the, the famine had occurred. They cried back out to, to the Lord and, um, and then God, and then, you know, and then that, there's a whole Gideon situation, and now, um, now they're, they're back to um, being faithful again, and so the crops are growing food, and the livestock are eating, and things are good again, verse 8. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Um, Naomi knew that as a widow, um, and at her age, like, the chances of her getting remarried are pretty slim. She kind of figured that she probably would have a better chance back in Israel, back in Bethlehem, uh, than she would in, in Moab. Um, but her math was that her daughters-in-law were still really young, and that the best thing for them was not to go with her, but to stay right there. To, to, to stay there. And so she is releasing them uh, to go get married, go find another husband, um, and, and get married. And that, she figured that was the best. It was going to be hard, but she figured that that was going to be the, the best decision for them. Because, I mean, that, that at least, I mean, the chances of them finding a husband back in Israel was low 
as a Moabite. I mean, the, the chances were, <laughs> those, those guys were looking for other Jewish women. They, they weren't looking for, you know, um, Moabiteans. And so that she just knew that that was going to be the best thing for them. And so she encouraged uh, them to, to stay. And it, and, and it says here, though, that you have dealt with the dead and with me. Um, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And that's just telling us that both of these two women, um, Orpah and uh, Ruth, were faithful to their husbands. They were faithful wives of their husbands. Now remember, they were born sickly, right? And I, I, there, there's nothing to tell us that they weren't kind of sickly their entire lives. And they died early, obviously. And so these two women were faithful to their husbands. They probably did things that were way above and way beyond what um, a, I don't know, a normal wife would do for their husband. They were very sacrificial in, in, in providing for their husbands, but also obviously to uh, their mother-in-law um, as well. Why don't we take a break right here? Now is a great time for a break. So let's have a 10-minute break. And the purpose of the break is to get to know each other, fellowship. There are cookies, uh, homemade cookies back at the table, uh, donuts. Say hi to someone you don't know. Ready, go. All right. Bring it in. All right, well, thank you for bringing cookies. Tonight's cookies... We're brought to you by Deanna Southern and Joanne Cassis. Must have been somebody else because Joanne is a... Okay, well, thank you. <laughs> Joanne has a new body part today, and so um, definitely not her. All right, well, let, let's get back to Ruth. We have a short amount of time to get to some of the best parts of the book of Ruth, uh, chapter 1. All right, um, verse, uh, verse 9. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, remember, uh, the two daughters-in-law have lost their husbands, uh, they were Jews, the, the women were Moabiteites, and now nobody has a husband. They're, they're, all of them are alone. Naomi wants to go back to Bethlehem, to Israel. Uh, maybe there's some help that she could find there, maybe not, but she thinks that's her best chances. And she's realized that probably the, the best chance for her daughters is, is to stay exactly where they are, verse 9. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go. For I am too old to have a husband. She's doing the math that she's not even going to get married again. And she says, if I said I have hope, that is to get married, if I should even have a husband tonight and essentially conceive tonight also and bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than you. 
for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. This is such a sweet scene where I think Naomi would love to have them, you know, she's going to be alone without them, but this is like the best that's for them. You know, have you ever, have you ever come to those situations where it's better for them even though they don't like it or want it? Um, as, as parents, sometimes it's like that, you know, we, we, you know we're going to do the best for them even if they don't like it. Um, as a pastor, I've, I've had more experience at that where there's some things that are just better even though they don't like it, and that's the situation right here. Um, she, she's sure that it's going to be better for those two girls to stay right where they are to find a husband, and it's going to be really difficult for them in, in Jerusalem. And Naomi has her theology right. She says, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. She realizes that God's hand is a part of every aspect of her life. It is all part of, all of, all of this is a part of God's hand. The famine is a part of God's hand. Uh, her marrying her lovely husband, and then her husband taking her with her to Moab is all a part of God's hand in her life, his sovereignty, his providence in her life. Uh, her two sons being sickly, all a part of uh, God's involvement in her life. Um, the two sons marrying, a part of God's involvement in their life. Two wonderful daughters-in-law that both loved her and she loved them. And then the two sons dying also, uh, she realizes is somehow a part of God's hand. And she realizes also that being alone in some way is also going to be a part of uh, God's work in her life, even though it's very difficult for you. She says, it's going to be harder for me than it is for you. And that's true. Verse 14, and they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Now, this isn't like pitting one daughter-in-law against another, like one's better than the other or anything like that. This is just two very different personalities. Orpah is the, the, the one that's obedient, you know, she's compliant, uh, her mother-in-law kind of recommends this, and, and she go, goes back to uh, Moab. Then she said, meaning Naomi, said to Ruth, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Now, this does give some insight maybe even into the difference between Orpah and Ruth. Orpah obviously was a great wife. She loved her mother-in-law. Not so, sh not so sure how much she loved God. I don't know, you know, because the, the way that Naomi puts it there, that she's gone back not only to her family, to her people, but also to her gods, her little G gods, that maybe she got married and just wasn't completely sold on, on the one and only true God of Israel. Verse 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you for... Where, where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God is going to be, be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death separates the two of me. Now, Ruth, she's not very compliant. <laughs> she's not very obedient. Um, she, she, com she is so committed to, to Naomi, and I don't think it's necessary. I mean, yes, she's committed to Naomi, but she's committed to, to the Lord. So, so, something about either her husband, or I they have a feeling that it's really Naomi that has been a dramatic influence in her life spiritually, you know, that, that this Moabiteite has left the gods 
the many gods of her family. And now she's like, they're the strangers to me now, and I will be going at least to people that believe, hopefully, the same thing that, that you've convinced me of with, with the Lord. And so, as crazy as it sounds, she wants to spend more time with her mother-in-law. I mean, that doesn't sound, it's not like something that everyone wants to do, but she wants to go live with her mother-in-law. She wants to go die with her mother-in-law. And so verse 18, uh, when she, Naomi, saw that she, Ruth, was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. And so they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now remember the trip to Moab was about a seven-day trip, 70 miles. And so now these two women take that 70-mile, seven-day trip back. And obviously, Naomi was well-known in Bethlehem. And I mean, she married a blue blood. She, you know, she married one of those. She, she married up, you know. And so everybody knew who, who Naomi was. But they said, is, is that her? I mean, it's been 10 years. So, I mean, there's at least 10 years worth of wrinkles, but she's had a, a life full of grief. So I don't think it was just 10 years worth of wrinkles. Life had been difficult for her. And so I think there are a few more cry lines uh, on her face than just 10 years normally would have brought her. I think that grief probably aged her enough where when she's walking in, they're saying, is that that really who I think that is? Is is that her? Uh, Verse And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. Naomi means pleasant. I think Naomi, that probably fit her. Um, Mara means bitter. And and she was very discouraged. Um, This is the point that she is at in her her life. Don't, Don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. For the Almighty has dealt with very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Yeah, that's her testimony right there. That, to, that's her testimony. The Lord helped me find a beautiful husband, and we had two wonderful kids. And as they headed out, she had such high hopes for those travels. She's going to a new place, and she was excited. The, you know, grass is always greener. Her two boys, they were going to play Little League. They were going to have, ha, have, uh, have fun as a family. My two boys are going to get married someday, and I'm going to have cute little grandkids running around me. And I'm going to grow old with my husband, and our families, our family's going to be great. And during those holiday times, those little grandkids are going to run around, and eventually we're going to have great grandkids, and we're going to die old together. And in the meantime, this family that we built will be our retirement, will be our sustenance, will be our joy, will be our our financial support. It's going to be so wonderful. And so that's how she left. But now she has nothing. She is literally empty. She has no husband. She has no kids. She has no grandkids. All she has is a Moabite. (laughs) She brought back a Moabite. That's all she has. And it shows she is empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has witnessed against me? The Almighty God has afflicted me. 
Now, I've mentioned to you that there are some uh, correlations between the book of, uh, of Esther and, and the book of Ruth, and there are many of them, yeah. You know, I mean, yes, they are both named after uh, women. Um, yes, they, they both very minimally uh, mention God or the Lord. Um, now you're beginning to maybe see some other similarities, like they both had very difficult family situations. Remember Esther? Her, both of her parents were killed by Nebuchadnezzar as he rolls through uh, Jerusalem. And so she's adopted by her cousin? Oh my goodness. Imagine your cousin being your adopted dad. Yikes. I mean, difficult family situations. And so now here we have, we have a woman with no husband, no kids, two, two other widows as well. So you're starting to see some similarities. And now we start to see, now we're going to, as we read verse 22, we're going to see another similarity, and that's God's sovereignty, his power and ability to intervene in the lives of people and to providentially play things out in the exact order that he decides to play them out, the plan, verse 22. So Naomi returned with her Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, that's a key. Barley harvest is in, in April. And, and that timing is impeccable because she's going to meet a dude. Turn in your Bibles to Ruth 4. Ruth chapter 4. Now, if you don't know the ending to the story and don't want to know the ending of the story, close your ears right now. Here's a sneak peek. This is spoiler alert, sneak peek. Now, remember that whole law of the leveret? Remember that? And uh, the way to rescue uh, someone who is in a tragic situation? Look at verse uh, 13 of chapter 4. So Boaz... Aha, the man, took Ruth, not Naomi, but Ruth. And she became his wife, and he went into her, and uh, the Lord enabled her to conceive. And she gave birth to a son. Then the w women said to Naomi, all the women in the town, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, so they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, turn in your Bibles to Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. I know you weren't ready for that, sorry. So we have Boaz and the law of the leveret. He was an unmarried uncle that married Naomi. 
But now we're in Matthew 1, verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now go down to verse 5. Solomon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boab was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Go down to verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. God works things out perfectly in his sovereignty. And, and I know this, this is a tragic thing that she is going through, but, but Naomi, Naomi has a grandson who is, his name is listed in the genealogy of Jesus. I mean, like, you know those bumper stickers, you know, on the back of the car? You know, my grandson is an A student at whatever middle school, you know? Imagine the bumper sticker that, you know, Naomi could slap on the back of her Prius, you know? If it wasn't for my grandson, there'd be no savior. And the only way that they meet Boaz, back to Ruth if you're, if you're still interested in moving, the only way that they meet Boaz is by showing up at barley harvest. Ruth chapter 22. That's the only way. God is sovereign, and his providence is perfect, and his will is perfect, because they needed that to happen so that Jesus Christ the Messiah would come. Well, it's 8 o'clock. It's time to be done. Let's close in prayer. Well, God, we thank you for your provision. We thank you for your providence. We thank you for your uh, supernatural power to orchestrate life so that we would have a Savior. And so we praise you for that. And we thank you for revealing these things to us, and it makes our souls rest easier tonight knowing um, you're, you're the same God today that you were then, and your provision and your sustaining of your people still exist today. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, have a good rest of your week. I'll see you on Sunday.